0: Hello and welcome to Hari Cuts. I'm Hari Stephen Kumar and it is Monday, April 13th and it is still a global pandemic out there. I hope you and your loved ones are are safe and healthy and home um, very much as I am. Um, we continue with uh, this podcast uh, 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 style narration of David Foster Wallace's essay, Uh, A supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, because why not think about something else other than the news uh, during these times, and why not take ourselves to the Caribbean back in 1996 on a luxury cruise with David Foster Wallace, as only he can uh, take a luxury Caribbean cruise and turn it into a philosophical rumination on the state of our existence on this planet. So let's just uh, dive in, it's a a pretty short section uh, today, section 4. It's just about a a page or so, and it only has two footnotes, Uh, and one of those footnotes I'm actually going to make as part of my hurry notes. So without further ado, let us uh, join David Foster Wallace on uh, his cruise ship in the Caribbean from a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, section 4. Section 4. Quote. Just standing at the ship's rail, looking out to sea, has a profoundly soothing effect. As you drift along like a cloud on water, the weight of everyday life is magically lifted away, and you seem to be floating on a sea of smiles. Not just among your fellow guests, but on the faces of the ship's staff as well. As a steward cheerfully delivers your drinks, you mention all the smiles among the crew. He explains that every celebrity staff member takes pleasure in making your cruise a completely carefree experience and treating you as an honored guest. Besides, he adds, there's no place they'd rather be. Looking back out to sea, you couldn't agree more." There's a footnote here, it's footnote 13, but this whole uh, quote that, that uh, David Foster Wallace just quoted is actually from the Celebrity brochure. He's about to go on and describe that. So I'm going to come back to this footnote a little bit later. Let's pick up where he leaves off. Besides, he adds, there's no place they'd rather be, looking back out to sea. You couldn't agree more. Celebrity 7NC brochure uses the second-person pronoun throughout. This is extremely appropriate, because in the brochure's scenarios the 7 and C experience is being not described, but evoked. The brochure's real seduction is not an invitation to fantasize, but rather a construction of the fantasy itself. This is advertising, but with a queerly authoritarian twist. In regular adult market ads, attractive people are shown having a near illegally good time in some scenario surrounding a product. And you are meant to fantasize that you can project yourself into the ad's perfect world via purchase of that product. In regular advertising, where your adult agency and freedom of choice have to be flattered, the purchase is prerequisite to the fantasy. It's the fantasy that's being sold, not any literal projection into the ads world. There's no sense of any real kind of actual promise being made. This is what makes conventional adult advertisements fundamentally coy. Now, contrast this coyness with the force of the 7C brochures ads, the near imperative use of the second person, you. The specificity of detail that extends to even to what you will say. You will say, I couldn't agree more, and let's do it all. In the cruise brochure's ads, you are excused from doing the work of actually constructing the fantasy. The ads do it for you. The ads, therefore, don't flatter your adult agency or even ignore it. They supplant it. And this authoritarian, near-parental type of advertising makes a very special sort of promise, a diabolically seductive promise that's actually kind of honest, because it's a promise that the luxury cruise, capital L, capital C, itself is all about honoring the promise is not that you can experience great pleasure, but that you will. That they'll make certain of it. That they'll micromanage every iota of every pleasure option, so that not even the dreadful, corrosive action of your adult consciousness and agency and dread can fuck up your fun. Your troublesome capacities for choice, error, Regret, the dissatisfaction, and despair will be removed from the equation. The ads promise that you will be able, finally, for once, truly to relax and have a good time because you will have no choice but to have a good time. Footnote 14. Footnote capital, your pleasure, unquote. several megaline slogans go, quote, is our business, unquote. What in a regular ad would be a, a double entendre is here a triple entendre, and the tertiary connotation viz, mind your own bloody business and let us professionals worry about your pleasure for Christ's sake. Yeah, that that connotation is far from incidental. Back to the essay. The ads promise that you'll be able, finally, for once, truly, to relax and have a good time. Because you will have no choice but to have a good time. I am now 33 years old. And it feels like much time has passed. And is passing faster and faster every day. Hari note, this guy was only 33 when he was writing all this? Ah, man. All right, back to the essay. It feels like much time has passed and is passing faster and faster every day. Day to day, I have to make all sorts of choices about what is good and important and fun. And then I have to live with the forfeiture of all the other options those choices foreclose. And I'm starting to see how, as time gains momentum, my choices will narrow and their foreclosures multiply exponentially until I arrive at some point on some branch of all life's sumptuous branching complexity at which I am finally locked in and stuck on one path and time speeds me through stages of stasis and atrophy and decay until I go down for the third time, all struggle for naught, drowned by time. It is dreadful, but since it's my own choices that'll lock me in, it seems unavoidable. If I want to be any kind of grown-up, I have to make choices, and regret foreclosures, and try to live with them. Ah, (laughs) Not so on the lush and spotless MV Nader. On a 7NC luxury cruise, I pay for the privilege of handing over to trained professionals responsibility, not just for my experience, but for my interpretation of that experience. Ie my pleasure my pleasure is for 7 nights and 6.5 days wisely and efficiently managed just as promised in the cruise lines advertising ah nay just as somehow already accomplished in the ads with their second person imperatives which make them not promises but predictions aboard the nader Just as ringingly foretold in the brochure's climactic page 23, I get to do, parenthesis, in gold, quote, Something you haven't done in a long, long time. Absolutely nothing. Unquote. How long has it been since you did absolutely nothing? I know exactly how long it's been for me. I know how long it's been since I had every need met choicelessly from some place outside me without my having to ask or even acknowledge that I needed. And that time I was floating too, and the fluid was salty and warm, but not too warm. And if I was conscious at all, I'm sure I felt dreadless and was having a really good time and would have sent postcards to everyone, wishing they were here. That's the end of section four, except footnote 13, which I'm going to come back to in a second. All right, so it's a fun little section. We uh, we have David Foster Wallace kind of uh, experiencing dread again. Um, One of the things I really enjoy about his writing is just his way with words and how he kind of evokes sensations and places with his words. Clearly, the way he ends this, where he says, you know, how long has it been since he did absolutely nothing? And he's talking about, you know, he knows how long it's been for him. He knows that there was this one time in his life where he was someplace where he had his every need choicelessly met. He was floating too at that time. The fluid was salty and warm. He's describing being in the womb. He's talking about, you know, being not just a baby, but being actually a baby in the womb of the baby's mother, uh, and and in that that sense of sort of complete, uh, you know, loss of, of agency. And he's comparing the cruise ship as being the kind of like almost parental figure that wants to just put you back in a womb uh, and and make you not, you know, able to make your own choices. Uh, and, you know, he has kind of used words to, to uh, evoke this earlier, too. Uh, a little in, in a previous section, there's a, there's a place where he, he uses the word uterine. Uh, you know, he goes, uh, you know what, the food was superb, the service impeccable, the ship was so clean and so white it looked boiled, the Western Caribbean's blue varied between baby blanket and fluorescent, likewise the sky, temperatures were uterine. And you know that, of course, evokes the uterus, evokes the womb. Um, and in this this whole uh, you know section here, as he's talking about um, the, uh, the 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 choices being taken away from him and advertising, and this 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 feels like for those of us that work in sales and marketing, it's really interesting to, to see him compare the use of words and the effect that the word you has uh, in, in marketing. Um, but as as brilliant as he is with words, there are times where he uses words that that have me kind of puzzled. Um, so here's my second Hari note. Let's actually go to footnote thirteen, the footnote that I skipped, and this is this is where he is uh, quoting from the brochure, and there's a little section there that he's quoting from, where he's describing how the brochure says that, uh, you know, you will notice that all the The smiles around you, you seem to be floating on a sea of smiles. There's that womb metaphor again. Not just among your fellow guests, but on the faces of the ship's staff as well. As a steward cheerfully delivers your drinks, you mention all the smiles among the crew. And he explains that every celebrity staff member takes pleasure in making your cruise a completely carefree experience and treating you as an honored guest. This is where David Foster Wallace has a footnote. Now, here's what the footnote reads, um, and it's about this, this, uh, what, what this, this weird thing about the staff, you know, uh, uh, being so honored to, to you know, uh, make guests smile. So it goes, okay, footnote 13. In response to some dogged journalistic querying, celebrities' PR firm's press liaison, the charming and Deborah Winger-voiced Miss Wiesen, had this explanation for the cheery service. Quote, the people on board, the staff, are really part of one big family. You probably noticed this when you were on the ship. They really love what they're doing and love serving people. And they pay attention to what everybody wants and needs. Unquote. This was not what I myself observed. What I myself observed was that the Nader was one very tight ship. Run by an elite cadre of very hard ass Greek officers and supervisors, and that the preterite staff lived in mortal terror of these Greek bosses who watched them with enormous headiness at all times, and that the crew worked almost Dickensianly hard, too hard to feel truly cheery about it. My sense was that cheeriness, capital C, was up there with celerity capital c and servility capital s on the clipboarded evaluation sheets the greek bosses were constantly filling out on them when they didn't know any guests were looking a lot of the workers had the kind of pinched weariness about them that one associates with low-paid service employees in general plus fear my sense was that a crewman could get fired for a pretty small lapse and that getting fired by these Greek officers might well involve a spotlessly shined shoe in the ass and then a really long swim. What I observed was that the preterite workers did have a sort of affection for the passengers, but that it was a comparative affection. Even the most absurdly demanding passenger seemed kind and understanding compared to the Martinetism of the Greeks, and the crew seemed genuinely grateful for this. Sort of the way we find even very basic human decency moving if we encounter it in New York City or Boston. (laughs) So that's footnote 13. Um, and, and in that description of the staff, you know, David Foster Wallace has this astute way of looking past the propaganda, the brochures, and he actually sees the staff. He notices the staff, and he notices how their smiles are actually very forced, and they're actually terrified of losing their jobs. Um, but this word, preterite, this this word tripped me up. I had to go look up how to pronounce it. Um, and then when I looked at the definition for it, I, I can't figure out why he's calling them preterite staff or preterite workers. It turns out the word preterite means the past tense or the past action of something. And I'm not entirely sure why he's using that here. And I don't think it's an accident because there's a whole another essay where David Foster Wallace actually writes about, uh, he was supposed to write the introduction to a to a dictionary, and he made that just, he made even a dictionary turn into this this beautiful essay on English language usage. So I'm pretty sure he's using preterite very, very carefully, but I have no idea why he's using it or what that means. So if any of you do, uh, please send me a message. If you go to anchor.fm slash Haricuts, you'll see a little button there that says, uh, send me a voice message. How about that? A good old fashioned voice message in these these times. and the the thing I, I, I want to end with is how he ends this, this footnote. He goes that these staff, you know, because they're so terrified of their Greek bosses, that even like crazy passengers, you know, demanding all kinds of crazy things from them, they seem so kind and understanding to the staff. He says, and they seem genuinely grateful for this, sort of the way we would find even very basic human decency moving. If we encountered in New York City or Boston, you know, so why is David Foster Wallace like taking this unnecessary slam on New York City or Boston? Of course, I think back in '96, that would have felt quite appropriate, and even just a, until entirely, you know, a few months ago, we would have imagined New York City or Boston. And for the, those of us that live close to New York City or Boston, we can kind of understand the sarcasm there. You know, these these two cities are very callous places and there are you know rudeness is almost a virtue there but then again um new york city is now the hot spot for the pandemic here in the u.s uh, new york city has more cases than any other country uh and uh which is truly frightening um boston too is a hot spot and uh, those of us that have friends and family in new york city and in boston Uh, there's a way in which we're reaching out to them and there's a way in which we're seeing stories come out of New York City and Boston of of superhuman basic decency Um, and there's I have a feeling that there's there's a lot in the character of life in New York City and Boston that's going to be changed uh, toward kindness and an appreciation of of basic decency in a way that um, hopefully endures and so uh, I wish uh, all of us experienced basic human decency in these difficult times as we're in. Uh, looking forward then to tomorrow, Tomorrow, section five. This is gonna be a much longer section tomorrow. This is gonna be a really, really funny section. Uh, I can't wait to read this for you all. Uh, this is where we're going to actually see some genuine storytelling. So far, four sections in, you might've been wondering, hey, look, this is about telling stories. There's no story here so far. Ah. Come back tomorrow, Section 5. There's story, there's scenes, there's David Foster, Foster Wallace at his, at, his, at his funny best. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that. It will lift my spirits as I hope it does for you as well. Until then, stay safe, stay home, stay healthy, stay human. Thank you.